Welcome to the iLeaps Early Careers podcast, where we explore scientific research related to the biosphere and the atmosphere, and share the personal experiences of our early career scientists as they navigate their way through academia. Our podcast today forms part of a series, which coincides with the iLeaps conference during March 2021, and in which we hope to introduce you to some of the Scientific Steering Committee members and also the Early Career Scientist Network Committee members, and through which we hope you learn more about the aims and motivation behind iLeaps. So on today's uh, iLeaps podcast, we are talking to Professor Alison Steiner, who is based in the Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering Department at the University of Michigan. So uh, thanks for joining us today, Alison, on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So um, so just to get to know you a little bit more and for our listeners, um, could you maybe tell us what has first inspired you really to become a scientist, please? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've been thinking about this a little bit in terms of how, um, you know, a lot of times when you see interviews of scientists, people like, I feel like the media sort of like certain types of origin stories. Um, And, you know, how, um, like, you know, we we often expect scientists to have these sort of unique stories about how they got interested in science. And I think, and I, so that had me thinking a little bit more about mine. And I would say that, you know, typically I'd characterize myself as someone who didn't get interested in science until much later, like more along the lines of when I was in in high school and trying to think about college majors, I got sort of interested in environmental issues. But as I thought about it a little bit more, um, it kind of went further back than that, but not in a sort of typical way, like where I was a kid who always said I wanted to be a scientist. I think in the fact when I was younger and up until I was maybe about 15 years old, I really thought I wanted to be a writer. But I always did, you know, if I, as I examine this more closely, I always did have this very strong interest in the natural world. So I grew up um, on the East coast of the United States and New Jersey. And we had a, my family, my grandparents owned a very small house at the beach. And so I spent a lot of my time at the ocean and getting really interested in, um, you know, I just love being outside. And I would say it was sort of like a curiosity about the natural world. But at that time, I didn't really translate that into thinking that I would have a career in science. And so it wasn't until much later when I was in high school that I, as I started thinking about careers a little bit more, I got interested in environmental issues. And um, when I was maybe about, I think I was about 16 years old, I went to a uh, marine biology camp. As I mentioned, the ocean was always a strong draw for me um, on Mount Desert Island, which is actually a national park in Maine. Um, And it was a really amazing experience because it kind of exposed me to a lot of different ways we could do science in this very fun set and also beautiful natural setting. And I think that kind of sparked my interest. And then when I came back, I started taking more chemistry classes and then decided to major in science in college. Cool. That's really cool. So it started off with oceans. That's re- I love <laughs> how hearing all the stories. And it's so different. Different people have, you know, things that inspire them. It's really cool. So thanks. Yeah, and um, I think, well, just the other one other thing I'd say about that is, like, I think it's, you know, I think a lot of that was curiosity-based, you know, and so I don't think I traditionally really thought of a science career um, as something that was for me, and I don't really have any reason for why or why not, you know, it just wasn't my strong affinity, but I think sort of as I grew older, my curiosity kind of drove a lot of that interest in the natural world, and that kind of pushed me towards being a scientist much later. 
Yeah, that's cool. So could you maybe explain a little bit about your career path then and sort of what experiences you, that you might have had, had uh, that kind of led you to the role that you do now? And maybe explain a little bit at the end about the science that you do now and what your field is really, and what mm-hmm. you like to research. Sure. Um, yeah. So when I went to college, I decided to major in chemical engineering. And I think this is pretty typical of most of my friends who were engineers, you know, for, especially for the women. There weren't that many women in my program. And most of the women who were there had fathers who were engineers who kind of encouraged their daughters into that field. So I went to um, a smallish type of university. Um, you know, I went to Johns Hopkins, which um, in my chemical engineering class, there are maybe about 20 students. So that's pretty small. So the same 20 cohort of us was going through all of our classes. And engineering is pretty regimented. Um, and it was a really tough curriculum. This was like old school engineering where everything was on like a B minus C plus curve. And they were really, it was really a very intense program. Um, and I started doing a little bit of research um, when I was an undergraduate, I, I worked in, um, I was at Johns Hopkins, they have, at that time they had a department called geography and civil, and it was geography and environmental engineering, they called it doggy. And so a lot of the environmental work was based in this other department. And like I said, I was chemical engineering at Hopkins, that was much more bio-driven. So everyone I knew was sort of interested in the bio angle of chemical engineering, but I was much more interested in the environmental angle. Um, and so I started doing research, it was on water quality, it was on fluorinated hydrocarbons in water. Um, and I liked it, but it wasn't like, I don't think I really, like it really clicked with me. I was, you know, and again, the coursework was really intense. So when I finished undergraduate, I was pretty, I was pretty burnt out actually. And so grad school wasn't really on the radar for me at all. Um, and so I, I got a job, I'd been interning a couple of years in college at an environmental consulting firm. And so I went to work for them. Um, and while I was there, I had a really great boss. Um, he exposed me to a lot of different aspects of the field. And um, we were working on this one landfill project in New Jersey. Um, so New Jersey is kind of like, I know this is going to be an international audience. A lot of people call New Jersey the armpit of the United States, of the East Coast, because a lot of um, industrial, like a lot of the oil and gas refineries are in New Jersey. People think of it as this very sort of industrial type of landscape. In fact, a lot of it is very bucolic and forested, but that's a different part of the story. But a lot of the landfills that are sort of in northern New Jersey, near New York City, a lot of them are what are known as EPA Superfund sites. So they're sort of like so polluted that the government takes them over and tries to remediate the sites. And so I was working at this landfill that wasn't a Superfund site, but it had a lot of um, municipal trash and it was super fascinating. It was uh, right on the banks of a river, like a tidally influenced river. And so they were mining sand and they would dig out the sand and sell the sand and then they would buy municipal trash and put it in there. Um, and then they were trying to remediate this this site like 60 years later. And so I did a lot of really interesting work digging up trash. Um, I have some really interesting landfill stories that I learned <laughs> at that time there. Um, and I like that. But that was actually what first exposed me to kind of studying atmospheric science, because that landfill at the time was doing some of the first um, harvesting of methane and selling it back to the New Jersey power grid. And so we got involved in some methane capture processes and then also looking at, um, you know, uh, the, there are a lot of flares that are then burning off that methane. Um, and so we were looking at emissions from those from those stacks. Um, and so that kind of got me interested in air quality. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of stuff going on at our work, although they were in, interesting in New Jersey. This was back in the 1990s. They were starting to do NOx trading. And so we got involved in some early discussions on that. And so it kind of got me interested in um, more in atmospheric science. Um, and so I started doing permitting for lots of different companies in the Northeast. 
um, where you'd calculate, this is kind of got sort of what got me into what I do now for research, you do emissions inventories. And so you'd go to a different facility and you'd calculate what their emissions of VOCs were and what their emissions of NOx were. And we did medical waste and dust emissions from construction sites and injection moding for car door handles and pretty much everything. Um, and then if they were emitting too much, you would do dispersion modeling. And that was sort of what got me interested in, in air quality. It was like, well, you know, you're not emitting all these compounds into the atmosphere and they're just dispersing and everything's fine. And so I got a little bit more interested in studying atmospheric chemistry. Um, and so I kind of blindly started applying to graduate schools and ended up deciding to go back to graduate school in atmospheric chemistry. Um, at the time I was living in, um, I'd moved a little bit further south. I was living in Washington, DC. and. Um, one of my big hobbies at the time was whitewater kayaking. So um, the Potomac River goes right through Washington, D.C., and it's great. Um, it's like class five whitewater, which is most people don't know right outside the city. There's this great whitewater. And so on the river, I had a friend who worked at NASA Goddard and he was like, oh, I know a woman who does atmospheric chemistry. Um, he's, he's like, you should meet with her and, and she can help you talk about like graduate school programs. And so I went to NASA Goddard, like on this sort of blind interview. And um, I met with a woman named Ann Thompson, who some people might know from the ozone community. She's done a lot of work on tropospheric ozone. And she kind of looked at my options and she was like, oh, you know, if you're interested in atmospheric chemistry, you should go to Georgia Tech because like they have the largest breadth in their program right now. Like if you don't know what you want to do, like observations or modeling, a lot of really great work is coming out of there. And if you go there, you should talk to my friend, Bill Schmidis. And so I like I didn't have any other advice because I didn't know anybody in the field. And so um, I took that advice from this total stranger um, and I decided to go to Georgia Tech. And I did, in fact, work on my PhD with Bill Schmidis. Um, I told Ann Thompson this story later and she has no recollection of ever meeting with me, which I think is kind of funny. It's like that sort of hidden mentoring that people do that you don't really realize. Um, and so when I was working with Bill, he was had written one of the first papers on isoprene and how it influenced ozone in Atlanta. So it was a pretty famous 1988 paper. Um, and so I was there, um, I started graduate school in 1997. And so we were working on a project in China. And so um, he had done one of the, he was starting to work on one of the early air quality in China projects, which um, it was still very hard to access data in China at that time. And so I started developing biogenic VOC emissions inventories for that China project. Um, and then and then ended up making that the focal point of, of my thesis. That's really cool. And I, I love how that you, you know, it's like these interactions and the people that you know and mm -hmm. the people you meet can have such an influence on your career and, and things like that. And it's really cool. I know. It's, like I said, it's, I think it's so funny that Anne doesn't remember that conversation at all. But also I, I kind of now at the point, I'm, I understand that too, because I feel like you have a lot of conversations where you're trying, you know, you're at, well, back in the day when we were at conferences and you talk to people and, you know, offer just little tidbits of advice. And a lot of times people are really, you know, struggling for advice. And so then they take that advice and then you might forget about it later, but that's okay. That's the way it works. So hopefully we're all looking out for each other. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. So, um, so you've kind of maybe already kind of leaned towards giving some advice there anyway <laughs> for us early careers, <laughs> like um, researchers, but is there any more advice that you, you know, kind of through, uh, your process of uh, becoming a professor and things like that. What sort of things do you, have you learned along the way and what could you pass on to early careers uh, researchers? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of important to try to get out there as much as you can, you know, and and try to put your, you know, if, if people have different styles in terms of the, how they interact with people and network people, like people think it's easy for extroverts to network and it's harder for introverts. And I feel like everybody can kind of figure out a style that works for them. So one of the things I think that was helpful for me 
um, and was definitely key in terms of um, helping guide me along my career path was finding a cohort of peers um, who were at a, a similar or, you know, near similar career stage. And so, um, you know, other like, for example, when I was in graduate school, I was feeling kind of isolated in graduate school because my, you know, my advisor's research group at that time was relatively small. And there weren't a lot of students um, that I was kind of like interacting with in our department. Everyone kind of kept to themselves at that time. And so I just asked to go to a, an AGU conference. And when I was there, I kept seeing a same like two or three young women at the same sessions that I was going to. And I just decided I was going to go up and start talking to them because I kept seeing them. And at that turned out at that meeting, um, it kind of grew into email lists and friendships that started the Earth Science Women's Network, which was sort of a group of us that decided that we wanted to be able to talk about advice. You know, so a lot of us were finishing grad school and applying for postdocs around that time. And so we would sort of talk about what fellowships were available or where we were applying or what we were interested in doing. Um, and that original group um, kind of grew and grew through an email list. People would hear about it and they'd say like, oh, I want to be on that list. And so that's sort of the, the start of the Earth Science Net Women's Network, which is now a huge, you know, international network um, of, I don't even know how many, a couple thousand women scientists, I think at this point um, across the globe. And so that, that finding that group was really, really helpful for me. Um, and I think that that's true also of my cohort, you know, in terms of the people I knew and, um, you know, some of the, some of that same group, but I feel like a lot of the community is really helpful in sort of um, providing peer networking, which can, which can be just as important as, so sometimes I'll call, I don't, I, I've used this term before, it's sort of like what I call lateral networking, which would be peer networking, which where you're meeting other people who are maybe at your similar career stage. And it can be really helpful to build that lateral network because it makes you feel a little bit more confident as you try to do what I call the vertical networking, which would be that you might try to, you know, talk with that professor whose paper you read, who is, you know, might be tangential to your work, right? That, those kinds of interactions can be harder to do. Um, and so sometimes mm -hmm. it can help to build your net lateral network as well as your vertical network. And so all those connections I think are important. So, I mean, I think one thing that was helpful for me in terms of building my career was finding peers that I felt like I could bounce ideas off of and talk to when things weren't going well. Um, and they kind of encouraged me and, and helped me to stay in the field. Yeah, that's cool. Thanks, Alice. And, and so talking about networks and things like that. So what I should have mentioned at the beginning, which I may go back and edit <laughs> for this, <laughs> is that you actually are, you know, you're, you have a role within iLeap. So could you maybe explain, you know, you're on our uh, scientific steering committee. So could you explain your role within iLeap? So maybe what motivates you then to join iLeap? Yeah, group? so I'm a, I've been a scientific steering committee member on iLeap since, um, I think 2016 was my first year. Um, and so I think I'm coming up. So usually on the steering committee, um, we have people come on to do three year terms and then you can renew for one more one more term. So I think I'm coming up at the end of my two terms on iLeaps. Um, and so I remember, so iLeaps is one of the relatively newer um, sort of uh, the a part of the global, I'm trying to remember all the acronyms now, it's sort of acronym soup, but what is now Future Earth um, it's sort of one of these larger international working groups. And when I was, it, re it really only started in around, I want to say it was kind of around the time of like 2003 or 2004 when I was a postdoc. And I remember thinking, um, so it was started by uh, the Finland group, Marco Kumala and his group of scientists. And 
you know, the idea was that it would sort of fill this gap in terms of this land atmosphere interactions. And so I remember when they formed being really excited because I felt like that really aligned with a lot of my research interests. And so I would go to some of the open science conferences and then I applied to be on the scientific steering committee. I'm trying to remember. So, so somewhere on the 2005 timeframe. Um, and what we do on the scientific steering committee, um, you know, we have in, in years past, we would have, or pre-COVID, we would sort of have annual meetings where we would talk about agendas um, and we worked to support the Early Career Scientist Network as part of iLeaps. Um, so Ben Poulter and I organized a workshop last, I guess, when was it? Um, Pre-COVID 2019 in the fall in Boulder, you know, trying to provide some discussion and support around specific topics, as well as um, provide a platform for people to network and exchange research ideas across this idea of, of land atmosphere interactions. Yeah, that was cool. And there was a really cool paper that came out of that. That's what we need to add there. Yeah, that's well. right. Someone <laughs> is the first author, just came out in BAMS. Um, I'm losing track of time. Sorry, it's like COVID time warp. Was it a couple months ago, two months ago, yeah. maybe in January of 2021? Yeah. So we can okay. put the link in anyway. But um, so, yeah, so like, um, so let's talk a bit more about your research then, Alison, and, and also maybe what sort of topics you think in bio, biosphere atmosphere research are really important, like currently, and, and maybe where we might focus our efforts as a community of ILEAPs in the future. What, what do you think of those mm -hmm. sort of ideas? Yeah, so I... I, I'm primarily a, a modeler, so we work with continental scale or regional scale models to try to understand um, feedbacks from both the, like the, what I sort of sometimes call like the biogeophysical perspective, which might be water fluxes or surface energy budget types of questions, as well as biogeochemical, which would be emissions of bi biogenic VOCs or primary biological particles and how they can have a forcing in the atmosphere. So sometimes I consider those two as being like sort of separate focus areas, but of course in the model, they all link together. Um, and so I would say a lot of what we've been looking at lately is trying to really examine how the models are working in representing these types of interactions between the land and the atmosphere, and what that means in terms of how well models can capture feedbacks. Um, so one example would be, we've been looking a lot at how land surface models um, are using soil moisture to try to explain, or you know, do they, how does soil moisture represent it and does it really capture the observed changes in latent to sensible heat influx ratios like the Bowen ratio? Um, as well as uh, we also have been looking a little bit at carbon storage. And so with those types of representations, you know, the land models are still struggling to capture a lot of the observed interannual variability that, that is present in the observations. And the, and the question really remains as to why. Um, for example, soil moisture can often be a big driver of interannual variability, but the models really struggle to get that soil moisture relationship right with the forest canopy and then like, as well as linking that to fluxes. Um, so that's one thing that we've been trying to look at. Um, the second one I would say is from the, from the perspective of sort of natural emissions um, and how they influence the atmosphere in terms of forcings, either a direct radiative forcing or cloud feedbacks. Um, so a lot of different types of natural aerosols um, and we've been looking at a couple, like biogenic VOCs and their influence on SOA formation is one. I've also been spending a lot of time looking at pollen as a primary biological particle emission. And that's a, a project that we've been really excited about. And then even more recently, we've been looking at natural um, aerosols that are released 
from lakes. So I'm in Michigan, which is at the center of all the five Great Lakes, which is one of the largest freshwater reserves in the world, um, excluding ice, of course. Um, and when waves break, they can create small aerosols, kind of akin to sea spray, but the composition is very different. It's a lot more calcium and carbonate than what you see in seawater. And so it's having some interesting impacts on the air quality in the region. Um, and so the natural aerosols are important, especially as we turn to try to understand pre-industrial forcing, right, which is mostly our metric of climate change. And we don't really know what pre-industrial aerosols look like very well. And so we've been trying to work on developing models to understand and explain um, that feedback. Um, but, you know, I, to your question about, um, you know, where I think future areas or where what I've been thinking about, um, which is that a lot of our evaluation of our current generation of Earth system models really seems to struggle to capture these feedbacks between the biosphere and the atmosphere. Um, you know, we've parameterized models fairly heavily and, and it's impressive what they are able to do. But as we start to dig into the details of, of especially like variability from year over year, the models can do general seasonal cycles, but they're really struggling to capture the differences. And I'm thinking of this primarily in terms of like latent heat fluxes, carbon fluxes, as well as VOC fluxes. Um, and so that's one thing that we've been trying to think about is what is it about, um, where is that gap? You know, is it something about the forest canopy? Um, is it something about soil moisture? You know, where can we try to improve some of that responsiveness of the model to the extreme such that as we project into the future, we're actually getting the accurate response of the model. That's really cool. So, and is it like, you know, like, so processes, not just kind of making measurements. So if you're a measurement person, mm -hmm for example, when you want to kind of supply data? Is it like also understanding processes? It's not necessarily just sometimes making measurements. Yeah, why it's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think one of our biggest, I, I still think one of the things the models really don't get very well is this relationship between, you know, moisture and fluxes. You know, we've been looking at this a lot. And I should say, like, there's I have quite a bit of US focus. We've been focusing on temperate deciduous ecosystems because we actually have quite a few law like long-term flux observations in those types of locations. So that makes it, you know, I think a little bit easier to try to learn about and explore these relationships. And so, you know, a lot of times I've, you know, the flux sites are really useful, but, you know, soil moisture is a tricky variable to observe, for example. We've, we're starting to develop like better remote sensing based observations um, that we can derive soil moisture from, but they struggle to work in forested ecosystems, for example, because you're really just capturing the water that's in the vegetation canopy. So, you know, that, so yeah, I think the mm -hmm. observations are really important. I mean, they're key in terms of understanding processes. And obviously we're dealing with these super complex systems. So, you know, short-term observations might mean you're just capturing some unusual fluctuation and therefore the long-term measurements are the ones that will really help us try to disentangle some of these processes. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Alison. So um, basically, that's pretty much all the questions that we've got to ask you today. So um, I appreciate you um, coming on to talk to us for that. Thanks podcast. for having Thank me. Thank you very much. So that concludes today's podcast. Thanks for listening. And just to say, if you want to learn more about iLeaps, please go to our website, iLeaps.org, where you'll find a link to our early careers website, or you can follow us on Twitter at iLeaps underscore ECSN or our Facebook page. Thanks.